1: This year during the flu season, while we are still battling with COVID, have you found yourself asking questions such as, how would you know if you're suffering the flu or from COVID? How are these two viruses the same and different? Is it safe to have the flu and COVID vaccination? Should women who are pregnant have both vaccinations? I'm hoping by having some of these common questions answered by St John of God Hospital Subiaco Respiratory and Infectious Diseases Specialist Dr Tim Whitmore may help us all make more informed decisions about rolling up our sleeve. So what are the key differences between COVID and influenza?
0: So both are respiratory viruses, both are what we call enveloped single-strand viruses rapidly transmitted between humans. The main key differences, besides the obvious that COVID is a novel pandemic that we don't really have any pre-existing immunity to, would be actually in the rate of mutation and the severity. So the flu, we always gripe that we have to have a new flu booster every year. It actually has a very high rate of mutation and in fact trade between viruses, between species. See the bird flu, the swine flu, trading various genomic sequences between them. This is why everyone's stressing out about the rate of mutation of COVID, which is, to be frank, nothing compared to that of influenza. Uh, Part of the issue with COVID is the total lack of any immunity in the local population. Wow! Obviously, they have variable severity that I think we're going to get into later on. And part of that does reflect that we have a lot of background immunity to the flu, as well as our ability to treat it.
1: So when someone's You know, got the flu at the moment, and obviously, when we're having flu-like symptoms, we should go for a COVID test. Absolutely. But what is there any sort of key differences between the symptoms?
0: Not really, to be honest. We talk the sort of key thing we look at is with COVID. Everyone talks about the total loss of smell of anosmia as the initial presentation, which is fairly unique to COVID. But we've all lost our sense of smell with other common cold viruses along the way. Generally speaking, from a symptom point of view, you can't tell them apart. If you have symptoms, I would say go and get a COVID test. <laughs> Ideally, it would be nice in an easy world to get a test for all the other viruses at the moment, but it's actually a lot of resources to test for those, and most people are happy to know it's not a COVID. And I'd say that's the priority from a pandemic control point any viral respiratory symptoms should get a COVID test. You can't tell them apart.
1: And then what about seasonal allergies around this time and, and you know, coming into it, it's gonna become your worst nightmare. <laughs> yes,
0: that's that's gonna be a small nightmare to tease apart. Again, I would actually say, if you have new symptoms, get a test. You can always be reassured and reassure your colleagues and people you live with. It's probably allergies, but I've had the test and I'm sure then you can be reassured that you, at that stage, don't have COVID and it is just the allergies. So you don't know if you, let's say you normally get seasonal allergies, but you are visiting someone in a hospital and you come down with new symptoms, is that COVID or is it seasonal allergies? If you've not had a test, I would suggest getting one. COVID itself is, more infectious than influenza in this setting, particularly the more recent strains, Delta in particular, um, essentially we're selecting out better strains that can more effectively infect more hosts.
1: Why can it spread? What is it about Delta that makes it so contagious?
0: Efficient, I guess would be the best word at binding to the receptors in the host. So it can more, whereas the way I would probably think about it is Let's say you, needed expo- you were exposed to someone with the original alpha strain. You might need, as a completely arbitrary figure, say 5,000 virus particles to be exposed to acquire disease. Completely arbitrary number I've made up on the spot. Yes, but it's... But delta, you say, might need three or 4,000 particles. They're more efficient at binding to the human epithelium, so more likely to acquire infection after exposure.
1: OK, well, that's interesting to know because I think people have, you know, you hear about... Um, when Delta gets hold, it it, it goes quick. And
0: we've seen all the case reports of people who've just been passing by not having prolonged exposures. We always sort of classically think about, okay, more or less than 15 to 120 minutes of exposure. And that's with the original strain. Now we're seeing, well, actually, maybe you need less exposure with Delta.
1: That's interesting. And
0: that's, we're obviously going to select out for that because the virus that's more, more successful in transmitting between hosts Will become the more predominant strain.
1: And are the same people at high risk of contracting influenza and and COVID? So Absolutely. the elderly, yeah. So there's no difference between them. Who's at, more likely at risk to get to influenza. get
0: either? No, we know we're seeing much worse outcomes in younger people with COVID than we do with influenza. But the same high risk groups are just as risk at risk of getting any. With COVID, with the Delta strain, the younger population are just at higher risk than we normally expect from respiratory viruses. And that's what we're seeing interstate at the moment with younger patients ending up hospitalised.
1: And so younger um, patients, can they end up in ICU or they're ending up in ICU? Uh,
0: They definitely are. Yeah. Part of that represents the disease itself, part of it represents, we obviously had a very strong vaccination push, focusing on the elderly initially, because they were at higher risk and we've been relatively successful in our vaccine push. I think we still have a long way to go in Australia with the vaccination effort, but we're protecting our older population. So now we're seeing the younger population who aren't yet vaccinated for whatever reason, ending up with severe disease.
1: And then what about, comparing the amount of Australians that die from influenza every year to COVID? Because I think people would be quite shocked how many people do pass away from influenza every year.
0: Yeah, well, it's an interesting comment, actually. I was just trying to pull up the numbers that I had here earlier. We, I was looking into this, we've had one of, we've had no deaths in Australia from influenza since June 2020. Wow. So it turns out that, you know, self-distancing, social isolation does protect against most viruses. Normally, so looking at our Australian annual deaths pre-COVID for laboratory confirmed deaths from influenza, it does fluctuate each year based on the local strains and how well the vaccine matches the flu strain. But so in 2016, we had 273 deaths from the flu. 2017, we had 1,181 down to 148 in 2018, back up to just under 1,000 in 2019.
1: Do you think we take influenza as serious as we should?
0: I don't think we do annually. Um, whenever there's a local pandemic, when we had the swine flu outbreak, the bird flu outbreak, it hits the media, we get excited, but everyone has a tendency to dismiss the flu as it's just the flu, you'll get over that. It has quite significant mortality, particularly in pregnant women just looking at our national and international figures on sort of COVID versus flu. Mm. So thus far, we estimate somewhere between, uh, so if we look at the US data, they've they've had a total of 40 million, uh, just under 40 million cases of COVID since the pandemic began, 640,000 deaths. They average, they normally think somewhere between 60 and 300,000 deaths from flu per year. So they've already more than doubled the number of deaths, let alone the number of cases.
1: But I think we'd still be shocked at how many people die from influenza, from the the flu. And I don't know whether it's because we just have this attitude of like, oh, I've got the flu. Um.
0: I think we do tend to dismiss a lot of viral symptoms and viral cold as, oh, that's just the flu, when it's usually just a common cold. Um, Actual influenza, when you habit is quite
1: unpleasant. So um, what is the difference between cold and flu? Because you go to the chemist and you're mm-hmm. looking at cold and flu tabs yeah. and I think we sort of think they're the same. What What is the difference between them?
0: So I mean, look, the common cold viruses can make you quite sick as well, but the majority of us have developed a degree of immunity over the years. So we tend to have mild illness limited predominantly to the upper respiratory tract, the nose, the oropharynx, you feel pretty rotten, but you don't get particularly sick, sore throat, loss of voice, rhinorrhea flu tends to more rapidly go to the lower respiratory tract and disseminate the body so you get quite severe myalgias I feel quite unwell within it can lead to quite severe respiratory failure flu particularly also predisposes you to superadded bacterial infections on top particularly staph aureus
1: so how are we actually how does when we go to the gp and someone's deciphering whether it's a cold or flu yeah. how, how do they best diagnose that
0: a swab, well okay. and truly. And the only way to be sure, is it just a very mild trace of influenza? You've had the vaccine and it's a very mild strain or do you just have paraflu, human metanumavirus, one of the other common viruses, another coronavirus? There's four or five always in circulation that are fairly harmless and make you feel pretty average, but nothing like the current one or SARS-1 or MERS.
1: So as a respiratory physician and someone listening to this podcast, what would be some of the key reasons why you'd promote someone or encourage them to really strongly consider having a flu vax every year?
0: So two approaches to take it, the self-interested one for the patient versus the public interest. Self-interest, flu kills people. It kills young people, not as much as COVID does, to be fair, but it does kill people. It kills the elderly. It kills pregnant women. And it's a virus that we, we take too jovially normally.
1: Yes. And so who, who should be having the flu vaccine every year?
0: So I would argue everyone. Really? Um, in reality, that's not going to happen. Um, definitely all high risk groups. So I, would all, I always recommend pregnant, elderly, anyone who's immunocompromised should absolutely have an influenza vaccination every year. Anyone who works in healthcare should, both to protect themselves and to reduce the risk of them acquiring it and spreading it to their patients. So that includes aged care, hospital in the home services, people delivering care in the community, just at the risk of spreading it to others. Generally speaking, obviously the risk of severe illness is much lower in young adults, and we don't routinely try and enforce that young adults get the vaccine outside of healthcare. But I would still, if anyone asks me, my advice is always, yes, you should have the vaccination.
1: So whenever your friends say, mm, I don't think I'll have the flu vaccine this year, you would definitely say, I yeah. always
0: encourage it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and Particularly
0: then, if they know me and in case I get it and give it to them, they're at risk. So.
1: And what about the argument of people saying, oh, but, you know... Depends what strains around. Does it really yeah. make a difference?
0: It does. We are, we, it's always a calculated risk with the flu vaccine because it mutates so much. We're basing our vaccine on what's been in the Northern hemisphere for the previous six months, assuming that will spread to us. And we don't always get it right. And the years when we're talking about how some years have a higher mortality rate, we've usually not quite got the strain perfectly right. We usually have three or four strains in the vaccine and it's a calculated, we think this is going to be the predominant strain. And part of that is the vaccine technologies we have that take time to deploy and develop the new vaccines. I'm actually hopeful that in the coming decades as we switch to more mRNA based vaccines like the current COVID vaccines, we'll be able to be more rapidly develop a better matching flu vaccine.
1: Was that why we got the COVID vaccine so quickly? It seemed like it turned around quite quick.
0: Look, it's two approaches to that. We were very lucky that the mRNA and the adenovirus vector vaccines have been under development for decades. Yeah. We just really lucked out that they were just about ready to deploy. We always talk about for most new vaccines, it takes five to 10 years to develop them. And people are obviously stressed that it's you know, it's been less than a year. How are these safe? Yes. Most of it boils down to money. So I think we've just been lucky the technology was nearly ready and that the, there has been enough money thrown at the issue because they're certainly not taking shortcuts on safety.
1: What about debunking the myth of I've heard people say, oh, I just get so sick when I have it, so I'm just not going to have yeah. it.
0: Your immune system's working. So you're, the, most of the way you feel sick when you have the flu vaccine or... Yes get the flu isn't so much the virus, so much as your immune system reacting to it and releasing a whole bunch of chemical agents designed to kill the virus and kill the cells that are infected. And that's what makes you feel so rotten. So I'd argue if you have a strong response you've propped to the vaccine, you've probably had a really good immune response and you might even have a bit more protection if you're lucky.
1: Fantastic. So all the more have Not a lot of evidence it.
0: behind <laughs> that, but that's the way I look at it and sell it to my colleagues and family. So. Sounds
1: good. And why is, you know, for pregnant women who might be really worried Mm -hmm. about either having the COVID jab or a flu vax, what Mm -hmm. what would you say to that that group of women that that are sort of putting off having those vaccinations because they're worried about it? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So the safety data, particularly for Pfizer, and the Moderna vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. Because it's really, coming,
1: isn't it, Moderna? Uh,
0: I think we're getting a million into the country, though I suspect we won't see many in WA just yet. Um, we're getting Moderna in, but the data is really reassuring. There's no significant increase in any adverse outcomes in pregnant women that I've seen. Whereas we know that in pregnant women, if they acquire COVID, their outcomes are actually a lot worse in terms of both maternal health and death and loss of the baby potentially. And I get asked not infrequently by my colleagues in both general practice and obstetric medicine what do I think about recommending it? What would I do if my wife were pregnant? And my advice is I would be recommending the vaccine, which I believe the national guidelines now reflect as well.
1: And can they have the vaccin- vaccination any time in the pregnancy?
0: So we usually recommend after the first trimester, just because we don't have data in the first trimester yet. Um, usually by the time it comes up and we're aware of the pregnancy and they're seeing the obstetrician, they're already outside that time period regardless.
1: And then what about, do they have to sort of have a staged approach, meaning they'd have the flu vaccine first and then they'd get the COVID Mm. or what's your advice then? So
0: we still recommend a gap of at least two weeks between the influenza vaccine and the COVID vaccine. Generally speaking, my advice would be start with the COVID. Just we are seeing currently, as of this week at least, almost no influenza in Australia. So in terms of your relative risk, I would get the COVID vaccine first and then the influenza. So week one, three weeks later, get the second booster dose of the Pfizer and then have your influenza vaccine two to three weeks after that.
1: And will they suffer any different in terms of side effects or it's the same whether you're pregnant or you're not pregnant?
0: Uh, I suspect they'll feel just slightly more tired, as you often do when you're pregnant anyway. But there's no data I've seen suggesting there's worse side effects, objectively, no.
1: And what are some other misconceptions you'd like to sort of, um, I, I suggest, put some fact around when it comes to flu vaccinations?
0: I think the biggest one is still that it gives you the flu, which is definitely not the case. It's, they're not live virus at all. And people just do get that immune response that makes them feel like they've got a very mild flu, to be fair, and which you know, I'd say is actually a really positive sign. But be aware, as we're seeing with the, particularly the new mRNA vaccines where people are having to take a day or two off work, they're really effective. That's generating a really good immune response. There's a lot of fear. I know there were some issues in the past when there were some febrile convulsions in children with the influenza vaccine back in 2010, I believe, with the local swine flu pandemic then. There is always a risk of an immune reaction with any vaccine. The actual overall risk is infinitesimally small. Um, Everyone stresses, you know, if I have the vaccine, will I get a flare of my underlying asthma? And the answer is maybe, but we can treat that. And that's we can prepare for it. We can have an action plan in place, okay? If you get increasing wheeze, your peak flows drop, here's your asthma management plan. We can cope with that. Whereas if you're exposed to COVID and acquired COVID, we're in a much more difficult situation.
1: And are those sometimes, sadly, the people that are ending up, you know, very sick in hospital trying to manage COVID once they get it?
0: Yes and no. While if they do get COVID, they can get more severe disease. And they're what we define as the high risk group in terms of more recent advances in treatment. I find that most of my patients in this setting are quite happy to have the vaccine. They just want to chat about it and be reassured. There's always debate with my older group about the difference between the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccine. But even then, most people are quite willing to proceed. They just want to talk through and make sure that I consider it worthwhile. And we talk about the risks and the benefits.
1: And as a, as a doctor, when you look at, you know, you would see the data and absolutely mm-hmm. read read and understand every little bit of um, of it and all the studies, they're both very safe?
0: Absolutely. There is obviously the risk profile we see with the AstraZeneca vaccine of the clotting syndrome, which is still extremely rare. One in 100,000 odd, I'd have to look at the most recent exact numbers for you. But even if you were to develop what is an exceedingly rare adverse outcome, the risk of death from it is now less than one in a million because we know how to look for it and we know how to treat it. And I think the way I always presented it is: if you've driven in your car to see me in clinic, that's a one in 5,000 risk of being in a fatal car accident. So mm-hmm. it's all about the risk benefit. It- I found it easier more recently to talk to people about the vaccine. Unfortunately, as our numbers of cases of COVID are rising in Australia, people have started to realise, actually, this could happen to me now. Um, And to be frank, these patients are at higher risk. You're seeing a doctor in a clinic if someone else there is sick with viral symptoms.
1: And then what about our own immunity? Because we're Mm -hmm. sold so many things, whether it's on the telly or all these wonderful people telling us to take lots of herbs and spices and different things for our Mm. immunity. How does it really help us when we're trying to prevent COVID and getting influenza?
0: My general view is no. All the supplements. So I'm not going to come to your house and
1: see supplements on your kitchen table.
0: (laughs) The only situation where I sort of tend to say recommending supplements in terms of general health is if you're deficient in vitamins in some way. If you're someone who let's say is a vegetarian or vegan who is low in iron, obviously recommend iron in that situation. Multivitamins, if your diet is deficient and you live on Hungry Jacks because you're a student, is probably not a bad idea, but in general, they don't tend to improve your immune response.
1: So what are then the best ways to improve our um, immunity that we could do um, that's within our control to Outside of vaccines, obviously.
0: Be healthy, eat healthily with a balanced diet and exercise. If your body is healthy, generally your immune function is better.
1: Okay. Yeah. So there's no special trips and tricks? No
0: I... magic answer No oranges? I no. Ah, I would love it. <laughs> I did with my daughter bringing home toddler plague regularly, hence all my <laughs> COVID swabs. But if there was, I'd be using it. There's nothing, no magic answer ah. that I've yet found.
1: <laughs> oh, I thought you'd have the solution for us <laughs> all. Um, and then what if you can track COVID and survive? What about, does that then... Make you less likely to get it again? Or does it actually help with your own your immunity to to get it in the future?
0: Difficult question to answer. It does give you some relative protection, because you often you will, and we have proven that patients have been exposed to COVID have caught it do develop an immune response. When we get exposed to a virus, our body produces a vast number of antibodies and then tries to essentially select down and produce only the most effective ones. That tends to not be as good as the targeted ones we develop with vaccination. And that response does tend to fade over time, partly because these viruses have evolved to try and evade our immune system to generate less of an immune response so they can be successful and replicate. Conversely, when you're vaccinated, that's with a carefully developed and targeted immune uh, antibody we're trying to develop, that will be more effective trying to overcome the attempts of the virus to evade our immune system. So I get this asked this not infrequently when I see patients in my clinic who have had COVID, mm. whether locally or have returned from overseas, should I get vaccinated? The answer I give is always yes, you will get much, better protection from vaccine than you will from natural immunity.
1: And then what about, um, there has been reports of people that get COVID's recover, Mm. and then they say it does affect their health long-term. So the
0: long COVID syndrome? Yeah. yeah. So I have yet to actually personally see a patient with long COVID, that's, I think, reflects that we're very lucky in WA at the moment with the amount of disease we have. Mm. But there are certainly patients who have quite prolonged symptoms, Years now after the original disease, and we think that reflects the damage done, particularly to their underlying vascular structures, from the disease itself. And they absolutely have chronic symptoms attributable to this. Yet another reason that we should be really pushing for vaccination. Everyone is, I see, not infrequently arguments to so say, well, you yeah. know it's I'll get over it mortality of you know one or one to three percent well that's that's still 97 chance 100 I'll be fine but there's a difference between dying from it and then having lifelong chronic symptoms where you're still impaired as a result you might have survived but you're still not well for the rest of your life
1: Mm. and then there are people that are you know and I think it's an important message to get out because you know there is that herd immunity what's your can you sort of explain that a little bit more, what you know, we're hearing, well, we need um, West Australians, for instance, 70% versus, percent. versus yeah. 90%? Yeah, what is it exactly? What so should be our goal?
0: It's uh, a very hard question to answer. It's essentially the level at which we would expect the disease to stop transmitting within the population, that enough of the population are immune, that they're not going to acquire and thus spread the virus throughout the population. We know that if you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID. Um, I wish there was a vaccine that meant you didn't, but we know that's the case. But if everyone is, the chance of being exposed, if you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you usually have much, much milder disease and the risk of severe disease is dramatically reduced. You're less infectious for a shorter period, so the chance of spreading it are more... We talk about sort of the magic 80% number of the threshold at which we think we can control the pandemic. And that's based on some modeling data. It's also based on past experience with other viruses. We know, for example, if the measles vaccination rate starts to drop below 80 to 90%, we then start to see measles outbreaks again. And that's where we get those numbers from. And we'd we'd love to be able to say, wait until 100% of the population are vaccinated, but that's not gonna happen.
1: What about um, people that are really a bit fearful and they say, oh, it hasn't been out for very long and I'm going to just wait and see and Mm -hmm. wait until next year or another year before I get vaccinated and then I know I have enough safety data.
0: So, again, as we talked about earlier, I think the vaccines haven't been rushed. The only thing that's sped it up is the amount of money that's been (laughs) thrown at the problem. The studies and the number of patients in the studies are immense, and really as similar, or if not more, than the numbers we use in other vaccine studies. I look at, for example, you know, tuberculosis vaccine studies. I'd love to have 40,000 people in those. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, can I say that there'll be absolutely no side effects from having the vaccine in 40 years' time? I can't say that. I think it's extremely unlikely. The technology is very well proven. Mm-hmm. Um, and the data is really good. I had mine as soon as it was available to me at the start of February this year. I've had no side effects that I'm aware of, and, and I've seen no major outcomes suggesting harm other than the known risk with the AstraZeneca vaccine that we've seen. Whereas we know that the risk of COVID then outweighs the harm of the AstraZeneca vaccine as well. The argument I would make is it's, there's a lot of, tendency particularly has been in Australia and in WA in particular to say, I can wait, there's no COVID here, I can wait. And look at our Eastern States colleagues, look at the near misses we've had, you can only wait so long and then when it gets here, it might be too late to get that vaccine then. Even Pfizer, you've got a three-week wait between doses before and then another two weeks before you're sort of at effective full immunity from the vaccine.
1: Yeah, because some of the cases we've seen have been people that have had their first vaccine.
0: Yeah. And look, a first vaccination gives you more protection than no vaccination and does ameliorate the disease. But why why wait and take the risk?
1: And if it's ever sort of offered privately and you could have both, is that really better for your immunity as well?
0: We don't know. Don't we don't. Know. There's a lot. There are studies going on to see what happens if you have AstraZeneca first and then Pfizer four weeks later. What happens if you have two of both? Those studies are still underway. Uh, I suspect at some point there may come a time when we say, start with AstraZeneca, because that is the most globally available. It's cheaper and faster to produce than the Pfizer vaccine. We can produce it in Australia and then have a booster of Pfizer, for example. That data is not there at the moment. I would argue at the moment, I would take what vaccine was offered to me. And if you offered me, if I wasn't already vaccinated and you said the only one you can have is AstraZeneca, I would happily go and have it.
1: That's a good message to get yeah. out there to sort of strongly consider thinking about your options. Mm. And yeah. And then why was that sort of in the making? Was that because the, um, it was, they were working on the vaccine because of SARS or? Uh, just
0: the, the vaccine technology itself. Vaccine technologies have evolved rapidly over the years. We started off essentially taking, for example, smallpox. We'd take cowpox and inject you with that and develop an immune response. That's obviously injecting a live vaccine into someone. So if you're immunocompromised, you might get cowpox and be very sick from it. That's proceeded through to what we call attenuated virus where you've essentially bred the virus through cell lines to try and end up with one that, while it's live, doesn't have all the other adverse outcomes. So you might get a mild illness instead of a severe one through to inactivated virus where we kill it and hope there's enough left in there to stimulate an immune response. We have egg protein based ones like some of the flu vaccines where you're expressing flu proteins in a matrix. We've just been slowly evolving the technology over the years. We've been looking at things like the viral vector vaccines, like the AstraZeneca for a number of years. Particularly, there've been a lot of data looking at those for treating cancers, trying to carry viruses into the cancer to kill the cancer. And the mRNA-based technology is the same thing. How do we take a viral protein, introduce it to the body so your immune system learns and develops a response, but without giving you the disease? And it's just been, we had these technologies nearly ready at just the right time. Wow! And then threw a lot more money at them. So that's
1: some um, amazing that so technology.
0: I, I think it was a lot of luck that that was nearly ready, following a lot of hard work by a lot of scientists over years, and we were lucky that that was nearly ready at the time. We saw we had other techniques being developed. There was the. Um, molecular clamp viral technology being developed in Queensland that we unfortunately had to abandon because it caused some false positives in some other viral tests but that was another one that's been underway for a long period of time and unfortunately we haven't proceeded with due to a few problems it caused false positives in other tests no side effects but meant we couldn't do a bunch of other tests on the patients so it's the technologies that are always underway to try and get better vaccines.
1: So when you're looking about social distancing, mm-hmm. hand sanitising, washing your hands, mm-hmm. I've even heard arguments of like, washing hands is even more, you know, uh, better at sort of uh, much more important hand hygiene versus using hand sanitizer. things like that. Is it the combination of doing all those things that, that can help? Um,
0: absolutely. And I think social distancing is absolutely the most important. If you're not close enough to someone to get exposed, fantastic. We know mostly it's a mixture of droplet and aerosol transmission. How much fomite, so our hands, our clothes, our ties transmit it, is less convincing than the others. So I would still always wash hands. That social distancing. We've essentially got rid of influenza in the country as a result of social distancing, so we know it works.
1: And it's free. (laughs) It's free. (laughs) So that's a good thing. Do you think that's helped us not spread influenza as much? Practising those, Yeah,
0: absolutely. And to be frank, people not coming to work when they're sick. Australians are not very good at staying home from work when we're sick. There's a lot of arguments I don't want to get into behind why we're not very good at that. But if you stay home when you're sick, you're not going to infect anyone else.
1: Just to finish off, what are some top tips that we can do to prevent ourselves um, and our families from getting COVID and influenza?
0: vaccinate and social distance. That's what it boils down to. Stay home when you're sick, avoid people when you're sick. It's hard, we all need to go to work. Um, We're not in a situation where many of us can just take time off when we need to. We have financial commitments, but if you're sick, you really should stay home.
1: All right, well thank you very much for your time today.
0: No worries, thank you.
1: A big thank you to Dr Whitmore for taking the time to share his knowledge with us today on MediTalk. And to learn more about Dr. Whitmore, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.